do you like rules? Let me guess. Do you like to hear commands? Most likely your answer is no. And I'm not surprised. I'm with you. We like and we live in an age dominated by human independence. We don't like to be told what to do. We like to think we are free to choose whatever we want. We live in an age dominated by a never-ending teenage spirit. Why call it teenage spirit? Well, because one of the marks of teenagers is their new discovery of independence. If you tell them what to do, most likely they won't. If you let them discover it for themselves, there's a small chance they might do it. Now, I know that is not the case with any of the teenagers in our church. I, I know that. I'm just preaching to, the, to those outside. But this is a teenage spirit, and we live in a spirit of our teenagers. Um, this is the spirit of our age. Most of us don't do very well with rules. Would you agree? Amen? Yet as we come to the end of this letter of 1 Timothy, we see a crescendo of commands that the apostle lays out to Timothy. And as I was looking at this passage, I wanted to tell Paul, this stuff will not preach well in the 21st century. But my impressions were given to him a little too late. What was written was written. So let's turn our attention to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 through 16. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 through 16. If you have your Bibles, um, the ones that are in the pews, you may find these, uh, the passage on page 1031. Page 1031. Here's the word of the Lord for us. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Let's turn to this God in prayer. This is the word of the Lord for us. And ask him to speak to us through his commands. Amen. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, I pray. 
I pray that you give us this morning a love for you that welcomes your commands for our lives. A love for you that delights in your commands, just as a psalmist's love for you made him eager to hear your commands. Holy Spirit, give us the same eagerness right now. Purify our love and purify our vision of you to see who it is that is addressing us through these commands. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, last week we saw Paul's warnings about the danger of using godliness as a means for gain. Uh, warnings about the peril of loving money, which can lead some people to fall out of the faith, as, as has happened even in the church in Ephesus. And all about these dangers, and all about all the other dangers mentioned in this letter, Paul has one major command for Timothy. Flee. Run away from all this. Now, friends, in most cases, running away from an incident is not very responsible. But when it comes to facing sin and temptation, the most responsible reaction is to run away from it. And that's Paul's first command here. O oh, men of God, flee from all this. Yet, as we approach the end of this, this letter, there's a number of positive commands as well that Paul gives to Timothy. So that it's not just about what Timothy should run away from, but what he should run to. These positive commands are then wrapped together with a solemn charge and then the entire text ends with one of the most beautiful descriptions of the majesty of God. So, as we listen to God's Word, I'd like to suggest three headings that will guide our thoughts this morning. Here's the first one. And those of you who are businessmen in our congregation would like to hear this well. Here's the first one. Keep your focus clear. Keep your focus clear. Or keep the target clear. In this last chapter of this letter, we see a crescendo of commands that come from Paul's voice very rapidly. These commands, I need to say, are not additional commands to everything Paul has said so far in the letter. Rather, they are summary commands. They, they encapsulate very succinctly what Timothy was to focus on based on everything that Paul has given Timothy in this letter. Before we look at these commands, let's remember that these are given to a pastor. If a pastor needed to hear these commands, each one of us needs to hear them. Friend, if you are a Christ follower this morning, how can you and I ensure that our focus is on the right things. If you're not a Christ follower this morning, perhaps you're still searching for the truth. You're not yet convinced of it, but you're searching. These commands may not make much sense to you. Or they may communicate to you that by doing these commands, you can't be saved. 
And I want to tell you very clearly that by doing these commands, no one can get saved. Because our rescue from slavery to sin cannot be done by paying our way out of it by obeying certain laws. The only way to get out of the slavery of sin into which all of us were born is to believe in the good news of the gospel that Jesus, the Son of God, paid the ransom price to free us from our slavery to sin. Had He not paid that ransom, the only certain future we would have is to receive God's wrath against all His enemies, us included. But God found a way to rescue us from our sin and to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His Son. But friends, not everyone will benefit from this rescue. Only those who repent of their sins and trust that Jesus had died to save them, to break the power of sin in their lives, only they shall be rescued and transferred from one kingdom to the other. Friend, I pray, if this is you this morning, I pray that today will be the day of your salvation when you will respond to the King's call to believe in Christ our Savior, the only rescuer from our sin. Would you like to do that today? Friend, I hope you consider seriously the command of Christ. And I hope you consider seriously that the supreme king of the universe will crush all his enemies on that day. And he does not want you to be a part of his enemies on that day. That's why until that day, he is the loving king who is inviting you to join his kingdom and to submit to his reign. And when you become, when you become a child of God, he becomes your king. Friend, this is our King who has saved us. And we gladly obey His commands because He's the King who rescued us from death. If that's your desire today, talk to someone at the end of the service. Come and talk to me or one of our deacons or any member in this congregation. But I want to make sure you understand this foundation for commands no one who obeys the commands of God by themselves is going to get out of sin. It is only through faith in Christ. But when we put our faith in Christ, we now have a new king. And our obedience to this king is out of delight because of what he has done for us already. Do you understand that foundation for God's commands? Because if we don't understand that foundation for God's commands, the rest of the sermon might seem like a very legalistic sermon. And I want to make sure you understand that it's not. With that foundation, Paul gives Timothy three positive commands that will help him, Timothy, adjust his focus. Paul clarifies what Timothy should pursue, then what Timothy should fight, and finally what Timothy should seek to acquire. Pursuing the Christian virtues is the first command. Paul mentions six virtues. Flee from all this, but... Pursue the following. Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness. And righteousness and godliness are, two, are a pair of two words that are closely knit together. Here, righteousness does not refer to our legal status before God. 
Only Christ obtained our righteousness in a legal stance before God. And yet righteousness can also be used as a word that refers to our, our conduct, our right conduct before God. You remember, God at one point bragged about Job, that he is a righteous man. Oh, how I wish I could live my life in such a way or God would brag about me as living a righteous life. Not in the sense that he, there's a legal standing, but in the sense of just right conduct. Pursue righteousness. And godliness is a similar word. Paul told earlier to Timothy in this letter, train yourself for godliness. Work out for godliness. Put in the effort so that you live such a life that manifests the piety, the character of God, the nature of God. So in some ways, pursuing righteousness and godliness is, is the same thing. Friend, let me ask you this morning, do you live such a life that focuses on right living? On living in light of God's Word? Do you seek to change your life constantly to reflect better and better on God? Are you putting effort in pursuing these goals personally? What about us as a congregation? Do we collectively seek to grow in righteousness and godliness? Then the second pair of words that Paul gives to, to Timothy is pursue faith and love. Now, faith is a gift from God. Yet this pursuit refers to seeking to grow in our trust in God. Remember, the disciples themselves in Luke 17 asked Jesus, increase our faith. And in 1 John 5, we're told that everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is a victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. It is by faith that we receive the victory which Christ came over the world. It's by faith that we can overcome the deceptive promises of riches and the false teachings of our day. Christians are called to live by faith and not by sight. So pursue faith. Pursue an attitude that continues to trust in God in all circumstances. And then pursue love. We're, we're not told the object of that love. Should we love God or should we love our, en our enemies or one another? All three. Pursue love. Since God is love, those who are children of God should pursue to grow in the quality and quantity of their love. 1 John chapter 3, 18, it says, We are commanded, dear children, let us love not with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. How can you pursue to grow in loving God and others? Not simply by words or feelings, but by actions and according to the truth of His revelation. Instead of focusing on pursuing material blessings, make it a goal, make it a goal to pursue faith and love, to grow in these. Don't be satisfied in what you have already. Pursue faith and love. And then finally, pursue endurance and gentleness. The Christian life is not just about starting it. The Christian life is about finishing it. Now, humanly speaking, just because someone starts a Christian life or appears to start the Christian life does not mean that they will necessarily finish it. Endurance 
is needed, and we should seek endurance. The assurance of salvation, while it is a great truth of the Bible, must never be understood in such a way that it would make superfluous our pursuit of endurance. Actually, friends, perseverance in the faith is one of the key evidences of our salvation, so we must persevere to the end. And then finally, the, the last list of virtues in this list is patience. And this is a bit interesting. Patience. Why? I'm sorry, gentleness, not patience. Gentleness. Why gentleness is included here? Because it goes hand in hand with endurance. Endurance is patience in difficult circumstances. Gentleness is patience with difficult people. Endurance is, gent is, is patience in difficult circumstances. Gentleness is patience with difficult people. Uh, gentleness is a virtue in how we relate to other people. Instead of reacting in anger or, self or, or, just, or hate, we self-control all that and manifest it by creating in us a spirit of gentleness. And the Holy Spirit does that for us. So instead of pursuing money, or other material gains, pursue instead these six virtues of the Christian life. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Friends, let me ask you, are these part of what you're pursuing? Are these things in your target as a Christian? Are these things what we consider together as a congregation to pursue and grow in. Some of you may ask, if righteousness is God's gift, if godliness is His work in our lives, is, if faith is His gift for us, if love, patience, and gentleness are fruits of the Spirit in our lives, then what is our role in pursuing them? Why command Timothy to pursue these if God is the one who is doing all of this in our lives? Is it us or God? It is clearly God. But listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purposes. Because God is at work in us, it is also our responsibility and the command that we hear from, from Paul that we have to pursue these virtues as well. So Paul can command Timothy to pursue these, and therefore he can expect us also to pursue these goals. But then look at the, the second command that helps Timothy clarify his goal. Fight the good fight of the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. Now this command seems the opposite of what Paul just said earlier about pursuing gentleness. I'm not sure if you figured out, but gentleness and, and fighting don't really go well together. So what is Paul exactly saying here after just giving the command of pursuing gentleness? Well, Paul is using here the imagery of fight to describe the Christian life. Uh, the imagery of fighting can equally be used in a military setting as in a wartime or in a competition like a sports competition, like wrestling. Yes, the Christian life is a race. The Christian life is a fight, a fight against sin 
a fight against ungodliness, a fight against false teaching. And to lay down the arms in this fight is not a virtue, but a compromise. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul said, Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer so that the Christian life is indeed described through this picture of, of a soldier, a fighting, of having a commander. John Calvin said the following on this verse, In order to withdraw Timothy from excessive solicitude about earthly things, Paul reminds him that he must fight. For carelessness and self-indulgence arise from this cause, that most people wish to serve Christ at ease. And as if it were a hobby, whereas Christ calls all his servants to warfare. Friends, do you think of your Christian life as a hobby? As something you do only when you can? Paul says, fight the good fight. The Christian life is a battle. It is not a Sunday weekend. Some of us would like to think about the Christian life as if watching football Sunday nights in our homes. Paul says, it's not about watching it. It's about playing it. It's about being in the game, not just watching it. I pray that God would help us to move away from being spectators of the Christian life to being players in it, fighters in it, because God has given us a battle to fight. So, beloved Christ follower, fight the good fight of the faith. It is a second way you can keep the focus clear. Thirdly, a third way Paul says to Timothy, keep the focus clear, is given in verse 12, part B. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Take hold of the eternal life. Now, this is interesting for us Baptists. Why the command to take hold of the eternal life if Timothy was already called to it and if he already made public confession of it? Why take hold of it? Friends, because there is a sense in which eternal life is still a future reality, even though we started experiencing, experiencing it here and now. There's a culmination. There's a full experience of this life still in the future for us. And as we should look towards it, we should strive to take hold of it. This command to take hold of eternal life is somewhat foreign to us who grew up with the traditional slogan, once saved, always saved. In the Bible, salvation cannot be limited only to a narrow view of conversion. Conversion is certainly part of salvation. It is true that salvation starts with our new birth. But salvation is a process that begins with our new birth. It progresses throughout our lives in sanctification, and it ends in our final common state of glorification. And because that's the biblical view of salvation as a process, Paul can command Timothy, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, to which you already made a profession, and which you have not yet attained. 
This is not very foreign to Paul. Paul said this idea again in, in Timothy, in, in, in Philemon, in a, a Philippians chapter 3, where he said, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of suffering, of sharing in sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. And so that somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Do you see how it works? Salvation is not just an act. Conversion is an act. Salvation is a process. So that we can say with Paul, I have not yet taken hold of it. But I'm pressing on. I am doing everything I can to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Do you see how that helps Timothy and helps Paul get this pastor to clarify his focus? Friend, if you're seeking to are you seeking to persevere? If Paul charged the pastor with this command then be assured that it's a valid command for all Christ followers. Church leaders as well as church members are called to take hold of the eternal life, and we do so by seeking to persevere until the very end. It's these three imperatives of what to pursue, what to fight, and what to take hold of that all are aimed to help Timothy focus and get his focus clear. I wonder in what ways can these th points also help us as a congregation Keep our focus clear. But then there's something else that happens. The point, the second headline in this passage is understand the solemnity of the charge. Understand the solemnity of the charge. Look at verse 14 and 15. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you, to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Another command. <laughs> but this seems to be the overarching command. This seems to be a solemn charge that encompasses everything that Paul has given to Timothy in this whole letter. It is a solemn charge. This charge is rarely used in the New Testament. Its unique emphasis is, stands out by the fact that Paul calls on two witnesses, God and Christ. He says, Timothy, I am charging you now in front of God and of Christ. And it's not surprising or accidental how Paul describes God and Christ. Paul describes God as the one who gives life to all things. And then Paul describes Christ as the one who made a great confession before Pontius Pilate. Why bring these two descriptions together in this charge? It's because we have here a picture of the cross. As Jesus obeyed the command of the Father to the point of death, and as the Father is the God who gives life to everything, it is these two truths that are the foundation, the impetus for the solemn charge that Paul gives to Timothy. Timothy, keep the command. 
without spot, without blame, even if it costs you your life. Why? Because Christ did the same. And as God gave life to Christ, He will give life to you also. Keep the command with all solemnity, with all seriousness. And then the Paul says, do it until the appearing of our Lord. Why this phrase? Why the focus on the appearing of our Lord? On one side, because once the, once the Lord appears back, once the Lord comes back, the command will expire. The king will be with us. This new creation will be his land. And there's no sense in which we will have to be commanded in a special way in a foreign land. We will live in his presence. But until that day, until he appears, keep the command. But there's a second reason, I think, why this appearing of our Lord is crucial in this solemn charge. The second coming of Christ, dear friends, is not simply an object of our curiosity or endless speculations. For Paul, the second coming of Christ was an inspiration to keep the commands without spot or blame. Friend, do you think much about the appearing of our Lord and how it will be a day of accountability? Or how it will be a day in which our great commander will evaluate how well we have followed him? And he will evaluate us on how well we have made disciples who in turn follow his commands. Teaching others all that Christ commanded is at the core of the Great Commission. Go and read Matthew 28 again. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey. All that I have commanded you. On that day when Christ will appear, He will call us and He will evaluate us how well we have made disciples who will obey and follow all of Christ's teachings. Yes, pastors also receive commands from God. God has given Timothy commands. Paul has given Timothy commands. The primary job of pastors is to keep God's commands. Pastors are ultimately accountable not to the churches that hire them, but to God. On that great day of judgment, no pastor can come and say before God, God, I have kept and done everything that my church asked me to do. God, on that day, he won't say, God, I have done everything my members wanted me to do. Some pastors may actually think they may get away with that. But that's not the way it's going to work. The only thing that will matter on that day when the Lord appears is, what have you done with what I have given you? And friends, don't think that that accountability is only for pastors. If you are a follower of Christ, you too will have to give the same accountability. And that's why the, the, command, the appearing of the Lord is an inspiration for the solemn charge that Paul gives to Timothy. And finally, friends, we said keep the focus clear, understand the solemn charge, and finally reflect on the majesty of God. Reflect on the majesty of God. The reason why Paul was, 
was able to engage in this crescendo of these, these commands, which he delivered to Timothy and to us, is because of the nature of God. Look at verse 15 and 16. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be glory and honor forever. Amen. In this context of closing off with commands, God is described as the blessed and only ruler. Is that coincidental? If God is a ruler, what is one thing he has the right to do? To rule. No wonder that Timothy was able to get these instructions. And no wonder why we also have this at the end of this letter. Because the majesty of God is the foundation for the commands that Paul had just given Timothy. The reason why com the commands have significance and a significant role in the biblical account is because of how God is described here as the blessed and only ruler. Friends, if the Bible is correct in describing God as a blessed ruler, then we should expect him to give commands. Otherwise, what kind of a ruler would he be? Now, the reason why we should not only want his commands, but also delight in them, is because these commands are coming from the one who is a blessed ruler. His commands are a blessing to us. And because he is the only ruler, his commands are the only ones that truly count. The world has many rulers. Our country is about to choose one. But God is king of kings. And Lord over those who lord over the earth. So when even when these words are given to us, this description of God is so timely for us just a few days before elections. This description of God is powerful because it's a reminder that our eyes should not be dazzled by our hopes in a new president. Our hope for the country of America is not in a new president. Our hope for America is in the God who rules over the kings of the earth. And no matter whom will be chosen on November 6th, God is going to be king. We can still come into this house of worship and praise God. Friend, do you have more hopes for America from a new president than from the God of the, earth, of the, of the world? the God who, who reigns over the kings of the world? Honestly, do you have more hope for a new president for our country than in the God who is king over the kings of the earth? That's why hearing God's commands is a blessed thing for us because they are the commands of the only one who truly count, the only blessed and true ruler. King of kings, Lord of lords, the immortal. We could talk about that as well. The, the, the unaccessible one, the one who, who dwells in such a light that no one can penetrate to him. The one that is invisible, no one can see or has seen. Friends, here we have wonderful major attributes of God, the supreme ruler, the supreme source of life, the supreme purity of God. Given these rare descriptions, no wonder Paul can close with this doxology 
To Him be honor and praise forever and ever. Friends, as we think about the commands of God, as we think about keeping our focus clear, as we think about making sure we understand the solemn charge that Paul gives to Timothy to keep the command, all of these commands make sense because of the majesty of God. That's why one of the greatest challenges of the church today, the church of Jesus Christ, is not to grow or to be relevant, but to be faithful to God's commands. And when we are faithful to God's commands, God will grow His kingdom. God's name will be honored. God's glory will be proclaimed among the nations. And this is our prayer. This is my prayer for us, Spark Hills. Let's bow our heads and pray.